You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. This is The Big Story, and I'm Justin Ling, sitting in for Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Last winter, as the Freedom Convoy descended on Ottawa from all directions, Conservative Party leader Aaron O'Toole was caught in a bind. First, he announced he wouldn't meet with the protesters heading to Ottawa to protest vaccine mandates, vaccines themselves, and, of course, the Prime Minister. Then, he did an about-face. He would meet with the convoy. But then he said, not the organizers, the ones who were peddling conspiracy theories and even violent rhetoric. But just a few days later, a caucus revolt upset over many perceived flip-flops over the course of his leadership voted overwhelmingly to oust O'Toole as leader. It was a tumultuous few days and the beginning of the end for O'Toole's time in the House of Commons. In a race to replace him, the party opted for Pierre Polyev, who was enthusiastically endorsing the convoy, and he even repeated some of their conspiracy theories about the World Economic Forum and its supposedly malign influence on Canadian politics. No matter how you feel about the new conservative leader, there's little doubt that he's a sign of a new type of political polarization in our country. And he's not the only one. For the past six months, I've been working on a report for the Public Policy Forum studying the state of polarization in Canada. And there's nobody I've wanted to talk to more about this than Aaron O'Toole. Last month, Aaron O'Toole resigned his seat in the House of Commons and delivered an emotional goodbye to his colleagues. And he made an appeal to everyone in politics to make Ottawa less combative, less toxic, and less polarized. So... What exactly is wrong with Ottawa, and how can we fix it? This is The Big Story, and I'm Justin Ling, sitting in for Jordan Heath-Rawlings. My guest today is Aaron O'Toole, former leader of the Conservative Party and outgoing MP for Durham. Aaron, hi. Great to be with you, Justin. So I I have to say, I I listened to your departure speech just a couple of weeks ago, and um, it's funny because I've been working on this report for the last six months about the state of polarization in Canada. And I was shocked to learn that you came to a lot of the same conclusions that I did. So, you know, tell me, just for starters, what led you to write the speech you wrote? Because you certainly could have done a, glad to be here, so long to all my friends, off I go into the sunset. But you chose to do something pretty substantive. Well, thank you. And because I wanted to leave a little bit of a message, I think even when you're saying goodbye and thank you, and I started my speech thanking my my wife and kids, of course, and my community. You should do that. It's an honor to serve. But I, I wanted to provide something for people to think about and chew on. And I've been reflective as we decided in February that uh, I was going to um, probably not run again. And then an opportunity came up and we we talked about leaving at the end of the session. And I've been very nostalgic looking back. And one of the biggest differences for me is the impact of social media and how when I was Running in a by-election in the GTA at the kind of end of, of fall 2012, you announced you were going to be somewhere on Facebook or you put out kind of, uh, you know, positive messages. It was a broadcast tool at the time. Now it's a feedback loop, and we're now, 10 years later, understanding the impact of algorithms. And I've seen social media change people in my own caucus and in you know other parties, and I think the pandemic was an accelerant on that. Um, I think now some of our 
adversarial nations out there also provide accelerant into it as well. And so I wanted to leave a message on that because I do think each MP, all 338, are leaders in their community. We're not followers of our loudest followers. And I think that's what social media is driving politics to on both left and right. So I think there was enough, um, you know, sort of comment to go around to all sides, including my own, including my own performance over time. And how do we ensure that there's still real debate? How do we ensure we're not just broadcasting for our existing supporters, making them happy? We're actually trying to build the odd bridge. That's the message I want to leave. And it's resonated fairly well. You know, there are some people out there who, over the past couple of years, some of whom still say so, um, will say, you know, we're not actually that polarized. We're not the U.S. We don't have Donald Trump. We're not seeing, let's say, the same level of backlash on women's rights or LGBTQ rights or, or whatever. And they're, they get kind of smug about it, to be honest, to say, you know, Canada might be immune from that kind of polarization. Um What's been your perspective? How have you felt the temperature change over over your time in office and, and during your time as leader? It's interesting, interesting you say that, Justin, because um, I used to think that a little bit too. In the first time I ran for leader in a race, I think there was 150 people in our race for conservative leader. I'm joking, but <laughs> I came third in about 14, I think, in that. And um, before our first debate in in Saskatoon, Donald Trump was elected the night before we arrived. And Kelly Leach changed her entire campaign based on that. And it really didn't resonate. She didn't resonate. She got some news coverage. but um, And I said at the time in some media interviews, saying Canada is not experiencing the same economic turmoil that, that the U.S. did with the Great Recession. We did better. So I don't think there was the levels of dislocation that can be seized upon in, in sort of a populist campaign. But I think that changed with the pandemic. I also think it changed over time as you might say globalization and other forces have really led to this sense of um, people feeling cut out of conversations and now they can find camaraderie online in groups and in Facebook groups and Facebook changed its algorithm because groups were doing well and other, uh, other regular accounts weren't doing well. So I think we are not immune, and the the wave of the Trump election in 2016 has caused ripples into Canada, and we're seeing the impact of some of those ripples now. I find it really interesting that you picked up on the fact that a lot of performance in the House of Commons, and you use that word performance, in the House of Commons seems geared towards social media. So it's no longer about the debate being had in the chamber. It's about how you can clip your little uh, participation in that debate, put it on Twitter, Facebook, wherever, and rack up views, comments, attract donations, build a profile for yourself. Um, talk to me a bit about that. I mean, you and to be honest with you, the Conservative Party is hands down the best at this. So you were really calling out your own colleagues, and I think you, to some degree, acknowledged that you had done the same thing over the course of your career. Um, I think we all have. Like, I'll never forget one time, um, Christopher Freeland always used to avoid me at committee. And I went down to Washington, let the ambassador know. And so my deputy, Garnet Jenis, filled in at committee when finally we'd been asking for the minister for a year to talk NAFTA, important things in foreign affairs. She knows I'm out of time <laughs> down. She slips in. And Garnet, rather than talk about NAFTA, started talking about overseas funding of, of abortion services. And the Liberals had a fundraiser out that night from a committee hearing. So I do think we are guilty, <laughs> Justin. I, I think all parties are increasingly just 
broadcasting to their following and sort of saying, hey, are you with us? Give me five bucks. Knowing that by the time somebody logs in, they're going to give probably more than five bucks. And it is changing the tenor. People have always complained about question period being a bit of theater. Years ago, it was to try and get that clip on the national or on CTV's broadcast. Well, no one's watching that stuff anymore. So now it's, you're getting your own clips. But what I've seen changing in the last few years is we're now preparing the clips in advance. So rather than highlighting a real stumble by the prime minister or something, we're, we're really just playing t-ball. We're teeing up our own stuff to say what we think the, the sort of most generous donors or the, the loudest voices on our channels will like. And we're ignoring the real issues of the country. And so um, I do think there's a bit of blame to go around, including to myself sometimes when, when I would have been performing. But I think as we now know what algorithms are doing, and there's been some good all-party work looking at this with you know Bob Zimmer, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, other parliamentary democracies... I think we have to have talk about transparency, but also talks about education for young people, but also for politicians that in some cases don't even realize they're being played by algorithms or even sometimes foreign influence. Yeah. I I mean, there's no doubt that algorithms play a role in this, but it's also, you know, people themselves are polarized. I mean, they have become so divided along party lines and party identification that they want politics to be a bit more of a blood sport. You know, there, there was this really interesting metric. I, I went and looked at some of the uh, videos that got uploaded uh, from the debate around the Emergencies Act when the trucker convoy was still happening. You know, there was still a blockade of Ottawa. Um, Scott Aitchison, one of your colleagues, got up and delivered this really fantastic speech, uh, speech about, um, you know, it's, he struck a conciliatory tone. He says, you know, we have the right to disagree with those who have chosen not to get vaccinated, but we do not have the right to call them racist or misogynist. He was calling for more kind of conversation and, and bridge building. And it had like 30,000 views and like, you know, a smattering of comments and it didn't do very well. Uh, Chris Workington, another one of your former colleagues, uh, uploaded a video where he called uh, the government uh, attacking our freedoms, um, said that, that the prime minister was going after his political adversaries. It was this really high rhetoric speech, and it had like 10 times as many views and infinite more comments. Um, your colleagues, everyone in the House of Commons, must be realizing what works and must be playing into it, right? Well, I said that in my speech, Justin. We're now um, framing our political impact by the number of likes we get on social media, not the number of lives we change in the real world. It, during that debate, there were there was coverage by some of the U.S. bloggers and some of the, the U.S. media personalities on the right. And some of our members got amplified by, by being talked about or, or commented on or retweeting. Um, people seem to sort of get vindication if, hey, Elon Musk saw my tweet Rather than saying, are you winning the argument? I would rather us sort of try and win the arguments and win over that discriminating uh, swing voter who actually does think about casting their ballot and is probably open to the conservatives on a range of fronts, but concerned about us on other fronts. So we're not going to win over those, you know, smart, thoughtful swing voters in urban and suburban areas unless we're winning the argument. If we're just performing... To, to get thousands more views and likes, we're, we're falling victim to this, you know, social media, you know, dumbing down of politics. Talk to me a bit about the Freedom Convoy. I mean, your, uh, the end of your tenure as leader uh, overlapped with the arrival of the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa, you know, this tumultuous like 72-hour period where initially you 
weren't going to meet with any of the truckers, and then you were going to, but not the organizers, just the participants. And it's, you know, we watched you in real time trying to navigate how to come up with a policy that could sort of be uh, attractive to the public, but also, you know, good by your party. And, and clearly it, it didn't 100% take. I know it was more complicated than that. But um, looking back, I mean, would you have done anything differently over over that, you know, that week period when the Freedom Convoy was was descending on Ottawa? No, um, because I went about as far as I could. And it was becoming a little, you know, I remember John Ibbotson said, Aaron O'Toole embraces the convoy. I said, actually, no, most of the caucus aren't happy that I won't endorse lawbreaking. And, you know, I, I, I saw a lot of MPs in my caucus kind of lose perspective. Uh, my leadership bid, uh, my successful leadership bid, was driven up heavily when I proposed a solution to blockading bridges and pipelines uh, during the Shutdown Canada movement, where primarily Indigenous uh, Canadians or environmental protesters were blockading things, shut down Canada. And I said, you can't, in the public good, blockade critical public infrastructure. It resonated so well, Jason Kenney introduced a bill on it in the Alberta legislature. So I said to a number of people, okay, we're not okay if people on the left do this, but we're going to give a pass. And I was upset because... I had advocated for the truckers longer than anyone, longer right. than Miss Litch and all these, you know, people that really came from protest movements or Benjamin Dichter and Tom Quiggin. These right. are divisive people I've encountered for many years, charlatans in, in, in some cases. They seized on that. Uh, when I met with some of the truckers uh, outside of Ottawa, trying to sort of hear their concerns and saying, you don't have to break the law— I saw the PPC organizers there. It was a political, um, you know, breaking or, or, you know, fraudulently, you know, flaunting the law, I should say. And that's not conservative in my view. So I think that was a tough time. I, you know, the tire marks are gone off my, off my head now. But I wouldn't have done anything differently because I ran an entire election trying not to demonize unvaccinated people. I was very pro-vaccine. But I said, nobody should lose their job. And we had advocated not just for truckers to be able to drive into the U.S., which we're only 50% of that decision, but Mr. Trudeau was going to cut off interprovincial trucking in January of 2022. And not a lot of people saw that. We did. And I did a press conference on January 6th. I remember the date well <laughs> for other reasons. Right. It was a year after the riots uh, on Capitol Hill where even the media, when I was saying, look, we have to accommodate people. We, you know, this has been a year people aren't going to get vaccinated. Yelling at them, jailing and fining them aren't realistic options. And you saw the Quebec government exploring that. We have to try and find solutions. And I just think my approach was the right one, in my view, Justin, but at the wrong time. And people were emotional on both sides of the issue. And so the 80% that supported the mandate were mad at the 20, and some of the 20% showed up in Ottawa, the convoy. So I think Mr. Trudeau created those environments by running a campaign on that. Um, so do I have regrets? Yeah, I had a regret that we don't, we had a campaign almost entirely based on vaccine politics rather than on, you know, other issues. But I was fortunate to have a window to put some ideas forward. Um, just wasn't the best window an opposition leader could have asked for. What do we do about those folks who came out for the Freedom Convoy or who supported it? You know, actually, biking on the way to the studio today, I passed a car with 
a big bumper sticker that said, I'm part of the, the fringe minority and I hold unacceptable views. You know, one of the kind of slogans of the trucker convoy. They're still out there. They're still angry. They're frustrated. Um, whether it's because they were talked to down by, the, uh, down by the prime minister or they lost their job because of vaccine mandates or because they have bought into some of the conspiracy theories and misinformation around it. How do you bring them back, right? You know, Pierre Polyev, the new leader of your party, has clearly tried to kind of bring them in the tent Maxime Bernier, leader of the People's Party, has tried to whip up that fervor even more aggressively. Some other organizers from the Freedom Convoy are still trying to build a movement off of those people. Is there a way to bring them back in the fold? Maybe, you know, agreeing to disagree on some things, but trying to get them back into, you know, into trusting government again. I think there is, but it will be not a quick exercise. I've used the comparison of society being a bit like an elastic, and we've been stretched through the pandemic, through this uncertainty exacerbated by rising interest rates, cost of living, social media, we're stretched to the max. And there's a risk that some parts of the, the elastic is fraying. I think it can come back, but it's going to take a little bit of time. This is why I'm agreeing to do longer form discussions when people ask for them. We need more of that. We need actually less of the performance politics and more of the, you know, Thoughtful speeches of Scott Atchison, as you said, um, they're not sexy. I used to say years ago, if I if I talked about um, a beavers or a Cub Scout event, in my riding will get twenty likes. But if I said Justin Trudeau is is destroying the country, I'd get a thousand likes because it's from people all over the country. That creates a model that incentivizes outrage, and so. How can we incentivize longer form discussions, podcasts, YouTubers? I think that's a bit of the future, but it's it's going to take some time to take root. I think you'd agree with me that at least for your party, and I think increasingly for the other parties, you can't win a, a leadership election amongst party members by promising to do conciliatory politics and build bridges and have long-form conversations, right? You win elections by demonizing your opponents, and and I think you take some responsibility for doing that in when you ran for leader and when you were leader. There's no positive reward for, for doing what you're talking about until, frankly, you leave politics. So how do you incentivize people to do it while they're still sitting in the House of Commons? Um, by having these conversations. I don't think I ever demonized Mr. Trudeau. Um, in fact, many times I tried to show the respect for the office that was due. Uh, I look at it in the same way I was in the military, the chain of command. You're, you're not on top, but you have to respect the chain of command. Was I perfect? Absolutely not. But I ra- ran... Um, to try and capture some of that frustration, but knowing that they were going to be voting for a, a relatively socially moderate suburban dad who had some strong feelings about the military, Canada's role in the world, pipelines. Um, each time, though, we lose, our base now sorts of seems to think that moderation or building bridges is didn't work under O'Toole, so we need to try something else. This is what parties are going to have to grapple with because I think with social media, there's going to continue to be an incentive to go further. That said, you could change the way leaderships take place. Parties have done that. You could change question period. You could change debate in the House of Commons. Now that we realize social media is going to change how parties are approaching debate, maybe we change the rules in France, Macron created a party with kind of reasonable socialists and reasonable Republicans. Um, if it keeps getting worse, I could see that on the horizon where people just kind of say, 
enough. We need some bridge buildings. You know, there's not a ton of ground between a, a Stephen Harper and a Paul Martin, really, um, economically and on a lot of social issues. So should we really get to a point where we seem that we're so far polarized that the country's at risk? I think hopefully the next few years we'll see that elastic come back to to normal a bit. And that's why I, I'm speaking about it as I'm leaving. And, and absolutely appreciate that. But just to poke at you a little bit, you know, when you were leader of the opposition, um, you, know, you, I think actually during the last election, you recorded a video intoning that the prime minister was covering up what may have been a lab leak at a Winnipeg lab that, and you heavily hinted that it could have been the origins of COVID-19, which was playing into a conspiracy theory that was incredibly prevalent online, um, particularly amongst the right, particularly amongst those who are skeptical about the nature of the pandemic. Um, do you think that that sort of thing feeds in to some of that divisiveness, some of that distrust, some of that animosity? No, because now we're having a conversation about it. I welcome it. We clipped John Stewart uh, in that video to show he was asking the exact same questions, and no one would suggest that John Stewart is a is a raging right winger. The government was covering up espionage, and we had responsible questions in the House that we asked on it. Myself, Michael Chong, others. Um, at a time that people were worried about the infiltration of scientists with links to the Chinese military to critical labs and sites in our country. All they could have done is is release those documents. They, they were forcing the speaker to go to court. They brought the most senior public health official in Canada to the bar of the House of Commons, Justin. That hasn't happened in a century in this country. So I think they've made it worse. There are questions about the the lab leak from Wuhan. We were not playing to conspiracies. We were playing to open questions. And there's been two agencies of the United States government have suggested that's possibly the most likely origin. I think hiding these conversations is not the way to go. Approaching it in a in a dedicated way, you know, I'm not suggesting every tone element of it was perfect, but whether it's cancel culture, whether it's interference by Beijing, I've tried to approach all of these important discussions in a serious way. And when I've screwed up, I've tried to acknowledge that. Um, but I think we now have a government that if you look at the Globe's reporting on access to information, how many times has Justin Trudeau said the story in the Globe and Mail is false? Like, we now have M Minister Mendocino being caught lying on several occasions, a bunch of uh, ministers don't check their emails. Like, it is really a litany of incompetence. And I, I, I think that's going to drive more and more questions. How do you do that without playing to some of the fears in a conspiratorial way? That's the balance I think all politicians have to strike. Yeah, and in your speech, in your departure speech from the House of Commons, you even single out some of the conspiracy theories that have bubbled up around the World Economic Forum, this idea that there's a sort of foreign master in Europe who's really pulling the strings, and it's become incredibly prevalent in a lot of these communities, whether they supported the Freedom Convoy or other kind of conspiratorial movements, and the new leader of your party is openly playing into them. I mean, it's become one of his most frequent talking points about the World Economic Forum. Um maybe extrapolating that out a bit, you know, what is the end result of this? If we keep playing this game, where do we get to as a, as a political culture? Well, I've, I've told Pierre my concerns about what is said online with the World Economic Forum and Davos. 
it's fine if you're going to say you're not going to participate. That's fine. But how are you going to make up for not having access to the global capital markets that are there every year? Are you going to do more outreach to Wall Street, to to Canary Wharf, to Singapore? Um, Canada needs to build pipelines. They're not free. We need LNG facilities. They're not free either. So when Stephen Harper gave his uh, Canada's an energy superpower speech at Davos, it was not because he was the Pinocchio puppet of, of the Davos elite. I think all politicians have to say, uh, push back a little bit on these things. And I've told a number of people in my caucus, I think that particular issue is a bit of a cancer in our party right now, and it has to be extracted. And that's not easy, but when I've had people at Maplefest in Bowmanville ask me about Davos or 15-minute cities, if you're actually respectful to them and, and talk about Stephen Harper's approach there, talk about, hey, if you don't like the parties with celebrities and some of the sort of very left causes there, go there and advocate like we did in the past for energy or or benefit reform. <laughs> Harper talked about changing old age security. Not exactly sexy, but he was there to, to sell our country as a place to invest. I said in the speech, you know, Lester Pearson helped draft the NATO charter. Like, we are a founding member of these multilateral organizations. If people aren't going to like them online, we can't suddenly say, okay, we won't participate. Let's reform the UN or modernize and expand NATO if, if, if there's issues or go to, go to Davos and advocate for responsible energy production. Don't avoid multilateral events because of what people are saying online. So I, I would like to see a much more intelligent discussion on some of this stuff because we're seeing now in the U.S. Uh, BlackRock is not going to use the word ESG, environmental social governance, because ESG is now some senator sinister plot. And I've spoken to members of the Jewish community. They get very concerned. You know, the Davos, George Soros, all of this is one or two steps away from anti-Semitism. So let's let's push back a bit. I, that's where I think every MP is a leader in their community, and that means, you know, informing and elevating the debate. But but where we're at now is that if if you as a politician on the right, center right, say anything, even even trying to reject the conspiracy theories around the World Economic Forum, let's say, you get piled on so aggressively, and you saw this actually just recently in the by-election. Um, your party was putting out mailers attacking Maxime Bernier for for going to 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 Davos, Switzerland, when he was foreign affairs minister, and it became this sort of competition to see who could appeal to the conspiracy theorists the most. That strikes me as a really dangerous sign that we're going in the wrong direction, not kind of heeding the advice you're suggesting and, and trying to speak earnestly to people, um, not talking down to them, not necessarily fighting with them, but but trying to bring them back into the side of reason. Um, it seems like your party is is hastening the decline into that sort of anxiety. Well, I think, you know, Maxime running in that by-election kind of set a completely different tone. You know, uh, Candace won that by-election with 53, 54% of the vote. Sure, the PPC got high. But most Ontario MPs would would do backflips to get 53% of the vote, Justin. Mm. What we see in the U.S., uh, a little bit with the Freedom Caucus and some of their antics now, even in some of our ridings in Canada that are the safest in the country, we're having MPs not push back one iota to these people. They, they think it's a tragedy if they lose five points and go from 75 to 70% of the vote. We have to represent all Canadians. And so that means not... Um, allowing some of these, you know, myths and conspiracies to to circulate. Um, 
literally when I got to the Harper government, I was one of the only young members of cabinet that had never been to Davos or never been a young global leader because I had a real life. I was not elected till I was almost 40 and you had to be under 40. So Andrew Scheer, a bunch of these people were listed as young global leaders because they'd achieved something. Does that mean you're beholden to this global cabal? No, it means you were highlighted for being in public life early on. Um, now people are scrubbing their histories, and I, it, it's comical. Stand up for our energy, stand up for Canada, and say any place in the world where we're going to be competing against the Americans, the Mexicans, the Germans for investment, Canada should be there, and we should try and win, not not hide from these debates. One of the elephants in the room here that is often not talked about is fundraising, right? You know, part of the reason you never want to contradict um, some of the most engaged, energetic, in some cases conspiratorial and paranoid online is because oftentimes they're the rank and file of the donor base who give you $5, $10, $20 every other month. And the pressure for each individual MP to raise money is enormous. I mean, can you talk to me a bit about the pressures of constantly having to fill the party coffer so you can go fight the next election and kind of what that does to your relationship with your voters and particularly your most engaged party members? Well, I think all parties have struggled with fundraising uh, under the new system, taking away the public subsidy in Canada. We don't have anything like the U.S. where they have to raise like a million dollars a week. It's yeah. it's kind of crazy there. But um, the Bernie Sanders campaign really showed how speaking to certain passionate folks can free up 25, 40, 50 bucks, and they'll be back in four months if, uh, if you know, if you talk to an issue that they may not heard, you know, anyone else talk to. So I think we've seen it on the left. We've seen it on the right. That's essentially how Maxime Bernier has, you know, paid for his nice suits over the last few years, has been soaking people for money. Max is a particular unique beast in that he has literally done 180 flips on literally every position. He was a socially progressive conservative in the past, uh, you know, marching in pride and, you know, in supporting rights. Now he's not. He was you know, at Davos, the, the photos of him with Bono and all that sort of stuff he decries now. Um, I, I think that fuels cynicism about politics, but you do see the clip approach, the memification of politics is largely rooted at making that active part of the quote-unquote base happy. Um, I've done it. A, a number of other people have done it. But if you're letting that active base tell you what to do, that's where the problem is. And I think in some cases we've seen people cross over that Rubicon and really just start echoing what they're hearing online. You know, part of the Conservative Party's strategy going forward, and I, I know I'm sure you've heard this because I've heard it from, from a ton of people in the party, is to go to Maxine Bernier's base and try to win over some of his supporters, right? You know, there's an expectation that Justin Trudeau has managed to lock down the center, maybe even a bit of the center right, and the Conservative Party's path to victory is winning over those 850,000 people who voted for Maxine Bernier last time. Um where does that get you? I mean, you know, we're talking about the sort of the ways in which he's kind of energized his own base. If you're trying to pull them into your party, does that sort of create a new toxicity inside the conservative party? That is a loser strategy. Um, absolute loser strategy. Um, there are some people advising Pierre to do that that I think is uh, wrong. Maxime tapped the anti-vax sentiment 
And I spoke to all the experts and they always said, you know, there's going to be about 10% of the population that will not get vaccinated. Half of them because of hesitancy, half of them because they're stridently anti-vax. Max is never going to have those numbers again because we're hopefully never in a pandemic election again. And so for us to try and occupy his space because he he might have taken 15, 18 seats from us, the much wider group of voters, Justin, is the people in the middle center, center right that live in the 416 and the 905 and the Vancouver region, the suburban Canadian voters that get very scared of Max's extreme rhetoric on rights, on, on, you know, environment and a whole range of things. So let's let him take that position and talk to people about the cost of living, the fact their kids can't find homes in the GTA or the Vancouver region. I think we will win the next election and it will be a rejection of the liberals. But if we've become, you know, the PPC light, we may not be able to hold government for very long. What other party is going to vote uh, with us on budgets and things like this? So we we have to have a plan to win a strong, stable, majority conservative government. You know, Harper's old line. To do that, you have to win the suburbs. And the suburbs are 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 not into going back on old debates. They're also not into a conservative party that doesn't want to ever talk about the environment or reconciliation or other issues. So I think we will win because it's a vote the bums out scenario. Trudeau looks weak on every single file, his cabinet. You can shuffle the deck chairs on the Titanic, but it's going down. If we want stable conservative government for the next few years, workable minorities or even a majority, we've got to forget the PPC and go after reasonable, smart, concerned, middle-class suburban voters. And it seems like part of Pierre's strategy for doing that is to talk about um, things that actually are, of course, top of mind, you know, rising crime, rising homelessness in, in major cities, uh, perception that things are kind of falling apart, things aren't working. But a lot of the time that comes down to a pretty negative appeal. I mean, there's videos of, of, of Pierre Poliev, you know, standing in front of encampments, um, saying some pretty outlandish, high rhetoric things about uh, about drug users. And on the flip side, you know, he's still campaigning against any sort of carbon pricing, against any sort of serious climate policy. Does that form a winning strategy. I mean, it is a pretty negative campaign, and it's one that doesn't speak to some of those anxieties around climate change that you were, you know, you were trying to, I think, bring your party along on. Um, well, there's two things there. Let me unpack both. First, climate. I don't think climate will matter next time. With interest rates going up, with cost of living, voters will want to punish the Trudeau government. It'll be toss the bums out. Um, we knew from 2019, the large reason Andrew Scheer lost in the suburbs I knocked on tons of doors here in the GTA. Um, we were wrongfully accused of being climate change deniers. People aren't sold in the carbon tax, but they want to say, what are you going to do? If you're going to throw that out, all my kids talk about is climate change. What are you going to do yeah. so I can tell my kids I'm doing something? Um, you know, our policy was great had it not been for the pandemic election. Um, so we're going to have to come up with something there. The city's issue, the encampments, my next podcast, Blue Skies for those listening, uh, is featuring the mayor of Oshawa who was homeless and ha had an addiction himself. He's struggling with these issues in South Oshawa. I've seen it and, and gone to some of the sites to see some of the measures they're trying to, to balance public safety and, and support for those with addictions. I put out a very comprehensive addiction strategy in the last election. I think people are scared with what they're seeing in the cities. And I think they're seeing the encampments of a sign as a sign that 
the cities are falling apart. And it's easy to play to that fear. And I think what, what Pierre is going to have to do is say, these are unacceptable. Here's a path to help a bunch of people out. Um, I think you're going to see him adopt some of the policies we ran on, which is a mixture of harm reduction and treatment. Um, but right now, a lot of the cities do look broken, Justin. And I, I think you see Kennedy Stewart lost in Vancouver largely due to that. And new Canadians, especially who came to Canada, looking at you know our cities and our suburbs as, as pillars of stability, they're scared by the violence and you know the open drug use and and you know the sort of fear that they might have in some shopping areas. So you're going to see people that maybe have traditionally not voted conservative voting against the status quo. So as I said, our, our challenge will be, I think we'll form the next government. We have to make sure that government lasts more than nine months because we're going to have to get support from the NDP or the Bloc or maybe the Liberals will give us support while they do a leadership. Who knows? But if we actually want a stable long-term government, we have to find a few more allies in the center-center right. Moving past just party politics. I mean, you ended the speech in the House on a pretty optimistic note, some cautious optimism, I'll call it, mm -hmm. um, and a hopeful one. Um, what are things that could be done, reasonable, tangible things that could be done that would make the electoral process better, our democracy better, the House of Commons better, um, that could actually be done either by a liberal government, a conservative one, or whatever in the near future that would maybe try to stave off some of this decline? You know, I've been thinking a lot about this. It's a good question. And I think groups like Samara and others, I've, I've suggested this to them before, put things out there that, that politicians will commit to doing when they're not in government. Because once you get the levers of power, no one wants yeah. to change the power of the PMO or the, the, the way question period is run. But I think if we actually went back to some of the Westminster traditions, longer responses to questions... Let the speaker dictate who takes part in debates. I would much rather hear from a John McKay on, on Arctic sovereignty than somebody who's going to be reading the speech given to them by the minister's office. And it's the same on my side. The speaker would get to know over time who should participate in debates. Um, drop so many of the committees we have, have a few standard committees and then maybe a couple specialized committees and make MPs attend debate more so that the House of Commons becomes more than just clips and question period. And I've said on a couple of occasions, I'm revisiting my views on proportional representation, not because you'd be interviewing the prime minister right now, Justin, and I would have won under that system, not because of that, because I think these entrenched unwillingness to find common ground that social media is driving may require us to, to experiment with the brokerage approach that... Uh, you know, so you would see some rural Alberta or Saskatchewan seats maybe being, you know, PPC or, or further right. But if if people could galvanize support on economic issues, like I think these entrenched differences are going to stay. So we now have a prime minister that has lost the popular vote in two elections, but formed government this time in a coalition that he didn't run on. So maybe we have more debates, mandatory voting. I, I think Social media has changed the game so much. We have to be willing to say, how can we adapt our parliamentary democracy to keep the best elements of free speech and debate and, and opportunity, but with the reality that there's going to be less brokerage in parties than there was in the past. So what's your role in that going to be going forward? You know, you're, you're exiting the House of Commons. 
what comes next as you take on, I suppose, your, your elder statesman role? Well, I'm 50. Please don't call me elder statesman <laughs> quite yet, Justin. Um, I'm, I'm going to help essentially where I can. Uh, I'm going to fade out. My time has passed uh, in terms of the limelight a lot. I'm going to be working on international trade and, and, and global risk for companies and investment funds for a European company named Adit. And so I will probably comment on war in Ukraine, on some of the tensions we see in the Taiwan Strait with ESG and supply chains. I actually think if we don't give in to some of the rational voices on Twitter on ESG, we could use these things to change global trade. A country that takes rights, takes the environment, takes you know governance seriously, those should be the resources sold, uh, hydrocarbons, uranium not resources from dictatorial, uh, dictatorial countries. So if we actually have smarter discussions about trade, about human rights, about global security, our role in NATO, um, I, think, uh, I think I can add to that a little bit. So I'm going to be doing that from the private sector, but it, it's been an honor to serve. Uh, I think Pierre's got runway that he deserves to, to have unencumbered by the old guy kicking around and grumbling from the sides. And when I have advice for him, I give it, whether he takes it or not, that's, that's each leader's prerogative. But I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so blessed that I've had the opportunity to, to take the shot and to put ideas out there. And for me, there's a joy in, in picking up the globe each day and seeing Arctic sovereignty, seeing um, uh, defense and NATO spending, seeing mental health talked about in new ways. These are things I've worked on for 10 years. And it shows a healthy democracy. Sometimes the opposition sets the agenda. They don't get to implement the agenda. But I think some of these issues that are very important to me and I think very important to the country will will ripple for years to come. And if, if I can help the country, I always will. Well, uh, Mr. O'Toole, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Justin. That was Aaron O'Toole, former leader of the Conservative Party and outgoing MP for Durham. I'm Justin Ling, and that was The Big Story. For more, head over to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Or if you want to send us any kind of feedback, congratulations, notes, ideas, we're at The Big Story FPN on Twitter. You can also email us at hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca or leave a voicemail at 416-935-5935. We're also available wherever you get your podcasts. You can also talk to your smart speaker and just say, play the Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Justin Ling in for Jordan. He'll be back next week.